You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So follow the leader. Uh, How how many of you have played follow the leader before? It's just been a while, right? And how many times when you played follow the leader, was there some joker somewhere down the line that thought they would mix up the game and do something a little different? How many times was that you? (laughs) All right. So today we're going to talk about the cost of discipleship. We're going to talk about uh, Paul and his relationship to Philemon and Onesimus. And we're going to talk, also going to talk about Jesus and his relationship, not just to his disciples, but really for anyone who would want to follow Jesus. But in order to be a disciple, uh, we have to be a good follower. And I know in today's culture, there is a lot of talk about leadership and about being a good leader, becoming a good leader. But in order to be a Christian, it's not so much a good leader that you need to develop but you need to develop to be a good follower because we have a leader and our leader is Kevin. No, just kidding. Um, We have a leader and our leader is Jesus. And the way in which the Christian faith works is we can't see Jesus, right? He was here and he is here in kind of a spiritual way. But there was a time when Jesus walked on this earth and people could see him And they learned to follow him and model their lives after him. And then they taught other people the ways of Jesus. And they didn't just teach them words to say or ideas to have in their heads. They taught them a way to live, things to practice, the way to kind of embody their faith. And those people taught other people. Apostles taught bishops and bishops taught other bishops and Bishops taught priests, and priests taught deacons, and deacons taught others, and on and on and on and on. So in Acts chapter 2, not at the beginning, all the exciting stuff where they're speaking in tongues and prophesying and such, but at the end of Acts chapter 2, when it defines what the people of God, what the, this new community of faith around Jesus, like who they are and what they do, it lists four things that they do. One is that they keep the apostles' teachings. Two, is that they fellowship with one another. Three, is that they break bread. Now, I know for some of you, you thought, is that being redundant, right? Because to fellowship is to eat together. The idea that you could fellowship without eating, it seems a little kind of nonsensical. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you, but when I grew up, we didn't have church events that didn't also have food with them, right? That's what's so hard about August for us, right? We took a break from breakfast. We weren't quite sure what to do because there was no food to be had. But um, fellowship actually meant just that, being together. And the breaking bread was shorthand for celebrating communion. So they followed the apostles' teachings, fellowship, celebrating communion, and then prayers. And those four things they did together, and that held them together. But let's Let's don't forget that first one. They followed the apostles' teachings. Well, the apostles had yet to write what we would now call the New Testament. So the teachings that they had were teachings about Jesus. And the way follow the leader works is much the same way the Christian faith works. 
We, we might not be able to see the person at the front of the line, but we can see the person in front of us. And if the person in front of us kind of stops doing what they're supposed to do, we might start mimicking them instead of mimicking what's going on at the front of the line. And that's exactly where I, I'm afraid we kind of find ourselves. And this is why all of us are kind of called to a life of faithfulness. Not just to learn and to know, but also to kind of do and to embody, right? To, to practice the faith. Like Paul says to the church in Corinth, follow me as I follow Christ. Which might seem like a really lofty thing to say. And I'll grant you, I think it is a lofty thing to say. But catch this. I think it's something all of us should be able to say. Like we should all be living a life like Christ so that others who might come after us, we can say, well, live like I live. Like this, this, this faith is passed from person to person. It's from generation to generation. And we need this. There's, there is a cost to discipleship. This is exactly what I think is going on in this very short book of Philemon. So Caleb, this morning, read us the whole letter to Philemon. That was an entire, quote-unquote, biblical book. <laughs> there it was. So it's a story, or a letter, from Paul to um, Philemon. So I, I didn't tell them I was going to do this, but I'm going to call uh, on the Anthony brothers, if you wouldn't mind. Thanks. So come over here, fellas. So one of you is going to be Tishicus, and the other is going to be Onesimus. Who wants to be who? I'll be Onesimus. Onesimus, very good. Well done. So you are Tishicus. You are the letter carrier. And Paul is Jexi over there. Wave at us, Jexi. So Paul's in prison, and he's writing letters, and he's sending it to the church in Colossia. And the church in Colossia... You have to know, in the ancient world, churches didn't have buildings like this. Churches met in people's homes. And in Colossia, it met in the home of Philemon. Thank you. Of course, I'll get to be Philemon, right? So the church meets in my house. And so Paul over there has written a letter to the church of Colossia, and he has given it to his trusty friend, Tychicus. So Tychicus has a letter, and he's bringing it into the church, and he's going to give it, most likely, probably to Philemon. And they're going to read that letter to the church. So this, this imagine now, this is my house, except for that one little section over there in Rome, <laughs> where Jexy, Caroline, and Jay are in Rome. All right, Everybody else is in, the, is in Colossia in Philemon's house, or Robbie's house, if you prefer. Right? And so we have a letter from the famous apostle uh, Paul. Our church actually wasn't started by Philemon. It was started by Phil. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> That's a little, little oasis joke. <laughs> right. Uh, our church was started by a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras, uh, Paul says, is his fellow prisoner. So I'm not quite sure if I'm supposed to take that metaphorically or literally. But if I'm taking it literally, Epaphras is Jay Wingo over there. Wave at us, Jay. Right, so he's, he's our church founder, and now we have his friend, this famous Apostle Paul, who has written us a letter, and we're going to call it 
Colossians, right? Because it's the letter to the church in Colossia, which again meets in <coughs> Philemon's house. So come on in. I get the letter and I'm happy to have it. And I'm going to read it to the church, or probably, better yet, Tychicus is going to read it to the church. And if we have any questions, we're going to be able to ask Tychicus, well, what does Paul mean by that? And we can ask him because he had just been with Paul. That's, that's how it worked in the ancient world. So you can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you very much. A lot of acting out today. But then there's Onesimus. So this guy, believe it or not, belongs to me. He's my slave. He's been gone. He's been with Paul in Rome, where Paul's in prison. And he has a second letter, except this letter is not to the church. This is a personal letter to <coughs> Philemon. This is not for you all. It's for me, from Paul. So I get this, I get this letter from, from my slave, and I realize that that language is harsh, and it, it, it should strike you, right? One, one person owning another. And when I get this letter from Onesimus, and I start to read it, it is a personal letter of endorsement from Paul to me for him. Paul's saying, look, I don't want you treating him as a slave anymore. I want you treating him like a brother. I want you to treat him like you would treat me. Like I know the culture calls for one thing and I know you have a legal right where you can do something. But I want you to kind of set aside those legalities and I want you to set aside those cultural norms and I want you to treat this man like a brother because you know what? He is your brother. He's your brother in Christ just as much as I am your brother in Christ. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the cost of discipleship here is at least partially the cost of living a life that is, that is countercultural, that doesn't look at the world the way the world typically looks at itself. It causes, it calls us to live in a, in a new reality, in a new way. And so Paul is doing just that. We don't get many letters quite like that. And it's interesting that the early church did include it kind of in the scriptures because most of the letters are written by one or two or three people to a group of people, right, to a church. Um, there are a couple of personal letters. Uh, Paul writes one to Timothy. He writes a second one to Timothy. He writes another one to Titus, so, and then the one to Philemon. So Paul does have four personal letters. And um, third John, the elder, John the elder, writes a, a letter to his friend Gaius. It's also a personal letter of endorsement. Like, who knew there were that many recommendation letters in Scripture, right? So it endorses a man named Demetrius to Gaius, who again seems to be the owner of the house in which the church meets. And whoever owns the house in which the church meets has a certain level of authority because they can either open the door or shut the door, right? And that's going on in the Johannine epistles. They're either opening the door and shutting the door, and the elders saying, hey, look, open the door to this guy, Demetrius, because he's my friend. This is even a more radical statement for Paul, right? 
Paul himself is in prison. Onesimus has been, most likely, been sent to him with some resources. Uh, in the ancient world, if you were in prison, you weren't guaranteed even food. Right? Just because they were in prison, you know, and you're locked up, good luck, right? So someone else has to kind of support you. Just curious, how many of you have heard that Onesimus was a runaway slave? Have you heard that before? I mean, it's a pretty common, common um, thought that's been suggested. But you know what? There's nothing in the text to suggest that he was a runaway slave. Like, that is such an American view. Like, if the slave's not on the plantation, he must have run away. That, that is not at all what seems to be suggested by the text. He, had, he, was, he was owned by Philemon. But likely, he had just been sent to Paul because like other people who have been sent to Paul while he was in prison, like from Philippi, there was a man named um, Epaphroditus who had carried the offerings and the support that the church at Philippi had sent to Paul. And then now Paul sending the letter back. Um, poor uh, Epaphroditus almost died. He got sick and everybody had been praying for him. And, and uh, Paul's like, man, I'm glad he made it. And I'm, I'm, he's, I'm able now to send him back to you, right? All of these kind of personal things. When in 2 Timothy, it's another time Paul's in prison. He's in prison a lot. Um, he's writing the letter to the church, well, to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he's like, like when Mark comes, so apparently Mark is the one who's bringing back support this time. When Mark comes, tell him not to forget my coat. <laughs> so it's cold over here in, in prison. So all of these kind of personal things. So most likely Onesimus isn't, isn't a runaway. He's not breaking the law or anything. He's just doing what he's told. He's carrying support to the apostle. And now the apostle sending him back. But he's not sending him back as a slave. He's sending him back as a brother. And that, and that I think, should, is a cause for pause for all of us. Like, we need to stop and listen. Now, we don't have slaves, thank God. But we have ways in which we do marginalize folks. And we think of them as less than others. And we relate to them kind of either economically or socially in ways that don't treat them truly as equals, as subjects. And there is a cost for this. The Cost of Discipleship, the title of today's sermon, comes from a book by Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the kind of famous pastor and uh, theologian from the 20th century. <clears throat> he was... He was a German fellow, and he had kind of left because in Germany in the 1930s because things politically had taken a turn for the worse, and he had an opportunity to teach in the U.S. He could have stayed in the U.S. I mean, he had plenty of opportunity to stay here. But instead, he goes back to Germany in the 1940s, early 1940s, and kind of preaches the gospel and writes things like the cost of discipleship, and he ends up in prison in Berlin and would be executed by, by the Nazis. One of the things that Bonhoeffer says, he says, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. I want to say that again. Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a person, that calling means an invitation to salvation. When Christ calls you, he's bidding you to come and die. 
and Bonhoeffer will talk about, he says the way in which we talk about grace this, the, these days is it, it, it's, um, it's, it's sick, it's broken, it's faulty, right? He says grace might be free, but it's not cheap. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It costs something. Most of all, it cost Christ his life. That was not cheap. And if we're going to be disciples of Christ, it's also going to cost us something. It's going to cost us to kind of set aside our way of being in the world. Um, set aside that kind of radical independence that says, I don't need to follow the leader. Why don't, why don't we just do this and not that? You know, they're going way over there. They kind of look silly. You know, look at what they say and look at how they dress and look at what they do. And wouldn't that just embarrass you? Why don't we just sit down here and not have to follow the leader? Like, that's, that's kind of quintessentially, I think, an example of what we've sometimes done instead of following our leader who calls us, calls us to kind of radical, excuse me, radical um, discipleship. The gospel passage for today comes out of Luke's gospel. And it says this. This is Luke 14, 25 through 33. And it's the passage of Scripture that gets kind of paired with 1 Philemon. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, Paul's letter to Philemon about Onesimus is just an example of what Jesus is calling us to in this passage of Scripture. Luke writes this. He says, Now large crowds were traveling with him, with Jesus. And Jesus turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whew, that sounds pretty radical. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? I often think of that passage of Scripture when I'm on I-4 over there in Altamont Springs. You know that one building has been built, it's being built over there for about 25 years? You know what I'm talking about, right? They didn't count the cost, apparently, to see what it would cost to finish it. Sorry, that was an aside. Back to Jesus. Otherwise, uh, when he, not Jesus, but when the one who didn't count the cost, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, as we do to the poor folks who tried to build that building, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Second example. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You don't go to war. If they have 20,000 and you have 10,000, you don't go to war. You try to negotiate peace. Like, what, what do we have to do not to go to war? So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Wow. Striking. Is Jesus being hyperbolic? Or is he, is he really calling us to a life 
of kind of extreme sacrifice, a life of setting aside our ambition and setting aside our, um, our own egos, which is not easy to do, and following after Christ. And uh, the church that I grew up in, uh, we called this practice. We, we understood that it, it wasn't a work that we could just do to ourselves. Like we couldn't save ourselves and we couldn't transform ourselves, right? That was the work of the Spirit. We ask and we surrender, but it's God's work. And that work of saving, and the term that we used was sanctification, that work of sanctification was kind of changing our very desires, like literally setting aside our egos so that Christ could be the center of who we are. I think Paul experiences this himself when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Listen to that phrase. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That, that's, that's amazing language, really. But what does it mean? I think that um, it's not, as Paul would say, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. If we follow the leader and we are faithful in following the leader, we will, we will live lives and we will have habits in our lives, uh, practices, traditions that we do that can help us and guide us and keep us on the path so that we end up living lives like Jesus and like those others who have followed Jesus, which of course include his disciples and then later would include people like Paul, who's trying to tell Philemon, and hopefully it included Philemon in the church of Colossia. And if we had a big chart, we could track all these people down, 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 that included, uh, you know, my grandmother, right? And my dad. That included people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and countless others. And hopefully now, Oasians, it can include us, but not just us so that we can be the end of the game. It can include us so that we can be that next link in the chain. So that someone else, too, might follow us as we have followed Christ. Right? And we can all kind of follow the leader and contribute to a community of faith, but hopefully even to a larger community that sees this kind of sacrificial love, that sees this way of being in the world, that can set aside our egos, that can resist kind of cultural trends or societal trends, and that can prefer the other, maybe especially if the other had already been kind of marginalized, which is exactly what Paul is calling Philemon to do for Onesimus. Um, and I think if we have ears to hear, it's what Paul is calling us to do and how we live. And if we listen really carefully, we can realize that's how Jesus was calling all of his disciples when he told them, if you want to be my disciple, you must first deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me.
We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.